Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs, the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers, and the Air Command and Staff College's eSchool, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. In this episode, Air University's Dr. Jared McKinney interviews Dr. David Ownby, Professor of History at the University of Montreal and editor of the blog, Reading the China Dream. Welcome to our second episode of the Indo-Pacific Affairs podcast. I am privileged today to be speaking with David Ownby, a professor at the Center for East Asian Studies and the History Department at the University of Montreal, where he has taught since 1994. David focuses on the history of religion in modern and contemporary China and the position of contemporary intellectuals in China. As part of that latter effort, David Unbi has developed my favorite website on the internet focusing on modern China. It is called Reading the China Dream, and on this website, David translates contemporary Chinese intellectuals who are writing about the big questions we in the West and in America all want to understand. And so I think we're in a privileged position to be able to communicate, at least indirectly, with some of the leading intellectuals in contemporary China through David. My first question in this regard is, your website is called Reading the China Dream. What is the China Dream? And do you think the intellectuals you translate on the website share the same dream as that represented by the modern Communist Party? Great question. The China Dream means a number of things. It is first a political slogan like Make America Great Again, or there are lots of slogans like that. Uh, Xi Jinping, the current leader, launched it as part of his rise to power. And for him and for the Chinese, Chinese Communist Party, it means a return to greatness, a return to China's centrality. China suffered greatly over the last couple of centuries, never losing, although doubting, the confidence that they would be back, that they're important. So that's part of it. More broadly for the intellectuals, I think what has sort of happened is as China's economic development fueled greater geopolitical importance, about the year 2000, Chinese intellectuals started to think that the world was seriously changing in ways that they had not really foreseen, that China might really succeed, that China might really come back, that, that, that China might succeed where even the Soviet Union had failed, because the Soviet Union did fail, which scared them to death in the 1990s. But then China pulled out of it. And then from 2008, especially, the West started looking like it was having a hard time. So for a lot of Chinese people, particularly intellectuals, they started thinking, this is going to be our century, that we're going to lead the way forward after these two great empires had fallen apart. Now, this is a pretty electrifying idea, if you believe it. It means that the world is going through changes similar to those that happened when uh, monarchies fell to democracies. And there is cons- there's a lot of debate, discussion over what 
China's dream should be. So to answer your second question, uh, they don't all share the same idea as Xi Jinping. Some of them do, but many of them are worried about China becoming the number one power in the world and would like to see changes in China's direction. So that China dream, the China dream in which Chinese intellectuals are engaged, is a much more plastic, plural, debated kind of thing. It's not a slogan. To many of them, it's a fact, and they need to try to figure out where they've been, where they're going, and what that means. So between about the year 2000, and it's still ongoing despite Xi Jinping's efforts to rein things in, there has been a lively discussion about China's past, present, and future, which I happened to stumble onto about a decade ago, and that's what led to the website and all the rest. One of the works on the China dream that got a lot of attention in the West was Colonel Lu Mingfu's book by the same name, in which he envisioned China as a great power in a constant struggle with the United States in the 21st century. What do you think Chinese intellectuals, uh, how do they assess this? Do you have any insight? I only know what I read. My thought is that most of the guys I wind up translating would like to see China scale it back a little bit. I was kind of surprised to discover that. Uh, I should specify, I don't read the propaganda because other people read that. If the Chinese government's going to translate something into English, I don't bother with it. So the people I read are generally academics who are good and ambitious, ambitious enough to write for the general public. So they are professors, most of them are professors, who will write academic stuff, but they also write stuff for their friends, their peers, the general public. And most of them, I think, are saying to one another and to the government, be careful, you might get what you wish for. I mean, many of them think China has been very fortunate over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years that the strategy of hiding and biding or keeping your light under a bushel has allowed China to make the extremely rapid development in terms of economic and geopolitical power that it has. And they don't see the upside to accentuating the negative aspects of relations with the states. Uh, both powers have worked themselves into a very tricky situation, but the way I read most of the people who write on this uh, that I translate on my site is that they're, they're kind of saying, whoa, let's rethink this. Uh, they're worried about populism, as they should be. It's very easy for Xi Jinping, like Donald Trump or like Joe Biden, to wind up being captive to... Uh, populism or nationalism forces that they kind of create and hope to use to their benefit, but they may wind up with their hands sort of tied by the same token. Do you think Chinese universities are like a safe box that the government can allow intellectuals some freedom to express their views? Or do you think the universities might feature more meaning, meaningfully in contemporary society and might, to some extent or another, influence government policy? Oh, those are two good, important questions. I'll see what I can come up with as, a, as an answer. I think China's intellectual space is generally freer than we depict it as being. It constantly surprises me. As I said a few minutes ago, 
I happened upon this pretty much by random. I just happened to read a really good book and in Chinese. Uh, I didn't know that such things existed, and I just started reading more broadly and eventually said to myself, if I didn't know this, if I don't know this, probably lots of people don't know it either. So I just started reading more broadly. Now, clearly, people get in trouble. Uh, they should not get in trouble. I'm making no apologies for the regime. When they attack uh, Tsai Sha or Xu Jiangrun, uh, there is no excuse for it. But my reading is that once the regime decides you're a dissident, then they're relentless, they're brutal, they're awful. But up to that point, there's a lot more latitude than we think. And I can't quite figure out the... There are no specific rules of the game. The state, the government leaves it vague in the hopes that people will censure themselves. But they would really rather not intervene and suppress somebody. So, I mean, you've read the stuff on the, on the website. A lot of it takes for granted that they will be seen as patriotic citizens hoping to contribute to dialogue and discussion of issues that are important. It probably helps that they're on university campuses. It, that may be a slightly safer space. Journalists have less latitude in general, I think, because journalists have a media presence that can get out of hand and they can get too popular too quickly. Uh, intellectuals, even Chinese intellectuals, can be dull, like me and my colleagues. So the, the danger to the state is less. Quite a few of the intellectuals you've translated write about empire and try to figure out what China is, an empire, a former empire, a future empire. Um, how do you place that thinking within modern Chinese um, sort of intellectual currents? Good question. Empire is where I think a lot of Chinese intellectuals imagine China's future is going that it's sort of like empire we've always had with us. If you look back to the old days, that's a major way that international society was organized. The notion that we're going to get past that is just utopian thinking. So that means the U.S. is going to have its empire, uh, and China will have its empire, and it's both okay. Uh, this is thinking that you find particularly on what is called the new left. These are intellectuals who embrace the Chinese state and are usually quite uh, enthusiastic about Chinese socialism. So the notion is that we're going to be, we're going to develop one belt, one road. It makes perfectly good sense that we should do so. Powers throughout all of history have had empires, and that's not going to change so just deal with it that's that's what they're saying in my view do you think empire implies an idea of military conquest i think most of them would rather not they may be all getting together and deciding not to talk about that this is one of those zones that they steer clear of my they rarely talk about specific military things here and there you can tell that some thinker knows a lot about this. They will mention facts that suggest they're plugged into uh, strategic databases and they're watching that kind of thing on a daily basis. But the claim is, and this is in line with Xi Jinping, whether you believe him or not, 
that China has no military ambitions, that if China wants to do one belt, one road, that is a way of developing parts of the world that have been underdeveloped in terms of globalization, widely construed. And if the benefits accrue more to China, at least at first, well, that makes perfectly good sense. They did the investment, they took the risk, and I think no, in general, my fellows do not want to see military stuff. I think they know that a war over Taiwan, for instance, no matter how satisfying it might be at some level to finally resolve that issue, would be a major fly in the ointment, shall we say. Uh, China has become powerful by being a major trading nation. War with Taiwan would disrupt that uh, considerably, it seems to me. And it's not clear that it would be worth that kind of undertaking. So most of my guys are pretty pacifistic, and they're concerned as elitists and members of the elite with the kind of chauvinistic saber-rattling that some of the masses like, and they want to see China pull back from that. That makes sense. Interestingly, one of the themes in quite a few of your essays is actually democracy. And there's this fascinating essay by Yu Kepeng, in which he openly praises democracy from an esteemed chair at, at Peking University. Um, how do you... Who do you think he's speaking to here? He has been championing democracy for a long time and has defined democracy in different ways over time. Uh, his big book was Democracy is a Good Thing, which he put out in the middle of the 2000s, I think. And it was taken as a major statement of where China was hope, hoping, well, we in the West took it as a major statement of where China was hoping to go to. And his general strategy was try to find things in China that looked like they might be democratic or turning in democratic directions and build out from there, which actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. That makes it far less conflictual. Uh, you know, your hardcore liberal or cold warrior starts from China doesn't vote, China doesn't uh, respect its constitution, there are no human rights in China, and so they set the bar really high from the outset. People like Yu Keping say, let's find, you know, citizens doing something somewhere where they consult someone, or let's find instances where the Communist Party actually does ask people about things. Let's call that, you know, stage one democracy and build on that. So that has been his approach. He's very much an insider as he makes clear in that little piece that I translated. I mean, he worked on the Translation Bureau. He worked on all sorts of things. He seems to be very engaged as a scholar and a mentor to students. There are lots of people like him in China. We don't talk about them too much because we don't have the capacity to follow these people, really. Uh, journalists, of course, pay attention to the plane crashes, the, the people who get in trouble, right? It's very hard to pay attention to all the planes that land, but that's equally as important, it seems to me. He is, you, I think, is unusual in his kind of fizzy enthusiasm for democracy. But there are many people in China who think in similar ways to what you put forward in that piece. Yeah, uh, 
Have you read Jiu Su's book, Democracy in China? I don't think so. Who's the author again? Um, Jiu Su, a professor in Hong Kong. No, I haven't read that one. Uh, he makes the case that after Xi Jinping passes from the scene, there'll be a, a moment of sort of reevaluation where maybe the idea of bringing the people into the equation for legitimacy would be a good idea. And I'm interested in this because one of the perspectives on China today, maybe one found in the Washington, D.C. area, is basically um, the Chinese regime is stuck in ice at this point. It's a genocidal regime. It's not likely to change. It needs to be recognized as such and essentially outcompeted. Um, and yet, the intellectuals writing in China, certainly the ones you've translated, they still seem to see more of a, a China in flux, a China searching for um, a sort of stable Chinese answer to the question of governance. Do you think they're going to ever move in that direction, that their ideas will develop? Or, or what about this idea that China's basically stuck where it's at today? Well, that's the $60,000 question, isn't it? You're absolutely right. My guys, uh, from all sides of the intellectual spectrum, are, as you say, looking for Chinese ways of governance. And governance is actually a word they've chosen because it's a buzzword in outside of China, too. But for them, governance is not government, right? So governance is a practice of doing something. It, if you talk about governance, their assumption is that there's more room to maneuver in there, that you can govern well without adopting Western structures of democracy. I think China, I think there's really no reason to believe that China is stuck in ice. Uh, China has changed enormously. Uh, Xi Jinping is pushing back hard against pluralism. He's pushing back against my website, basically. I mean, what I've shown as I've worked for the last few years is that there exists in China this really plural way or plural system of ideas, intellectual system, which he really doesn't like. And looking at the situation from the point of view of the leader of a communist party, you can understand that. If you admit pluralism as a value, or even if you admit that pluralism is okay at an intellectual level, well, then why not a political level? But, I mean, it was only 10 years ago that China was really bubbling over with democratic ideas. There were people like He Weifang, who's a law professor at Peking University, and was more of an activist than a professor. And he gave, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 speeches a year where he talked about the need for the rule of law, and he, he spoke to packed auditoriums all over China. He was really a big deal. He made, uh, I think it was a Times somebody's list of 100 most famous people in the world. He made that one of those years. This was only 10 years ago. He's still there. Oh, they've taken away his social media. He can't have the impact that he did. But he's got a YouTube channel, and he's putting his stuff out there in the VPN universe so that he's, I mean, he's not completely gone. So I've read stuff, people, people who say, you know, could go... Either way, after Xi Jinping goes, maybe people are tired of that kind of stuff and could push back in ways that would change things. 
the communist, the Chinese Communist Party is hardly monolithic. I mean, it's 90 million people. There are multiple points of views within the Chinese Communist Party. So I've not lost hope. Um, my worry is that China functions as one of the only unifying things in U.S. politics, that everyone can decide that China is terrible, and this enables America to function, which would not be a happy situation going forward. Immanuel Kant actually once wrote that uh, from discord with other nations comes concord within your nation. So Absolutely. Sad, sad, but true, I would say. One of the things that I think seasoned China watchers and academics and sort of maybe people who perceive themselves to be fair-minded and objective have a hard time explaining is wolf warrior diplomacy, which frankly seems absurd. The fact that China thinks it's going to win friends and influence people by consistently insulting all of its neighbors and um, engaging in petty disputes on Twitter and other social media in order to somehow boost the image of the Communist Party. Who do you think thinks this is a good idea? And how has Wolf Warrior Diplomacy come about? I think it came out through exasperation. Um, I had a Chinese friend who was professor here some years ago. This would have been like 15, 20 years ago. I don't know. But anyway, he said to me once, it's like we were once really, really obese and we lost tons of weight. And instead of saying to us, you know, you look good, the West said, you know, your butt still looks really big in certain lights. So if that's what people have said to you for years and years and years and years, you get tired of being patient and letting it just roll off your back. Uh, over the last few years, it does seem to me, I mean, China does all sorts of bad stuff and should be condemned for it, but that's not all China does. But if you're Chinese and you read the Western press, I don't, I can't remember the last time I saw anything positive about China. You know, China got hundreds of millions of people out of poverty over the last few decades. It's an absolutely astonishing thing. I started going to China in 1980, maybe, so it's been a very long time. And the China that I saw then, and the China I see when I go back now, it's just completely transformed. It's, I don't know if it's miraculous or not, but it's really quite something. And I think some Chinese just decided, you know, if they're going to, I'm going to give as good as I get, that if they're going to criticize everything we do, we might as well hit back. Now, you're right, it doesn't work at all. It's emotionally satisfying. Uh, but I think China feels like they've been bullied for a long time, so they're going to bully right back. Now, virtually everyone I read and translate on my site is really, really, really against this. They're just, they, they, they think exactly like you do, that this is lose-lose, right? All you're doing is escalating a bad situation by playing tit-for-tat, by beating up on Australia, by, you know, even it's very, very petty. But once you start down that road, it's very hard to rein it in. Because once you rein it in, it looks like you're making concessions, right? And uh, they, they have reined it in. They don't do it quite as much as they were for a little while. 
Uh, I mean, it was during the coronavirus that it got really, really, the first part of the coronavirus that it got really, really out of hand. Uh, but I think tensions, emotions were quite wrought or fraught during that period in any event. But uh, all of my people, again, would really like them to stop doing that. It basically ties the hands of diplomats. It makes, makes it much harder to exercise a sensible foreign policy. It riles up public opinion. And it's just generally a bad idea. Uh, I'm hopeful that Biden's team will be less tempted to go in that direction. Trump could not let any challenge fall, of course. If Biden is more sensible, then maybe China can ratchet it down too. One of the key texts in Chinese military theory is the science of military strategy from China's Academy of Military Sciences. And one of the lines in this document says that China needs to transition from being a big power to a strong power. And I think a, a lot of people fear that, well, here's China as a strong power. Is this the sort of China you want to live with? Um, I, I guess the, the question is, do, do you think any of these sort of voices of reason, people like Xiang Lan Chen, have gotten through pointing out that short-term emotional, you know, victory does not equal long-term rational strategy. I see my guys, some of them are closer to power than others, and I don't pretend to know the lay of the land on all that. I translate people who whose position I don't really know. I mean, I can find where they are in the university system, but not where they are in the power system. I think most of them are just sort of background noise. I think China as a society in general has more respect for intellectuals than we do in the West, or particularly in the United States. We're very anti-intellectual. China is not. I mean, they have this whole Confucian heritage that largely disappeared over the course of the 20th century, but they've still got a lot more social cachet than I do, say, in, in the United States or Canada. So I don't think any of them has Xi Jinping's ear, but there are think tanks and there are occasions when uh, the Politburo will call in one of these guys to hear what he has to say. So I think they're not unaware of it, but I think policy is a very hard thing to do. Um, so my hope is that China gets confident enough and feels good about itself enough that it can be a bigger power, not a stronger power, that it won't feel compelled to lash out at somebody in the NBA who says something about Hong Kong. I mean, a great power should be above that, right? You just let it roll off your back. You think a few days down the road and you just don't worry about it that much. But maybe that's my my personal China dream. I don't know. Mm. As China moves to 2049 and the centennial of the founding of the People's Republic of China, do you think becoming a developed, prosperous, modern society is enough? Or do you think something needs to happen, specifically in terms of what some intellectuals have called the unifying of the three traditions with reference to Confucianism, Marxism, and I suppose what you might call Dungism. 
Well, that's something that they've been talking about a lot. The basic notion there is that China needs a set of values that let society function a little bit better and binds society to the state. Uh, these values have been in flux over the entire 20th century. And uh, it's true that there are many areas in life where there doesn't exist the kind of consensus that you would like to see in a place where if you don't know somebody in China, it's very hard to get help from strangers. Uh, it can be a pretty cold place, although there are exceptions to this. I don't want to overgeneralize. So that's what a lot of intellectuals write about, this idea that China needs uh, new founding myths or some kind of social cohesion, which will enable them. Right? That, that would also help them to become the bigger power that I was talking about, the notion of, of being more okay with who they are. I think part of, I hate to generalize about China like this, but behind when, it, when any, any person or any country blusters a lot in the way that China does with wolf warrior, wolf warrior diplomacy or things like that, that's often hiding an insecurity, right? Otherwise, you, don't, you wouldn't feel the need. Uh, I think China's more confident now in general than it was before. And if they manage to happen onto some common values, that would certainly help, yes. As you read Chinese intellectuals, I'm sure you only translate a very small percentage of what you read. So what do you tend to read in contemporary China that we don't see on your site? Oh, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of reporting on the rest of the world. I don't deal with that. I deal with some of that, but I basically focus on U.S.-China relations. But there's a lot of information that comes from, you know, Latin America or Eastern Europe reporting on various social movements. It's just too much work to translate, so I let leave that out. There's a lot of Confucian stuff. There's, there's quite an effort in China to bring back Confucianism. And uh, that takes me into areas where I have a hard time reading. They, they, they use a lot of classical textual material, which is slow going. It's like reading Latin. Or the other thing that's in there, the 20th century Confucianism got immensely complicated. There were a series of figures who tried to make Confucianism relevant to the modern world by comparing it to various German or French systems of thought. And it's, to me, it's utter gob gobbledygook. Not that it's wrong, I just can't understand it at all. So I don't read that as much. Um, I don't know more than that. I mean, there's, 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 China's intellectual world is much more diverse than we think. There's very good journalism. Not all the journalism is good, but you can happen upon good journalism, some of which I translate. Uh, but I can't possibly. There's so much to read. And Chinese is such a, a tiring language to spend much time reading on. I suppose this should probably be our last question. But if the Secretary of Defense were to call you up, David, and say, 
uh, in three minutes, tell me what I need to know about China. What would you tell him? I would tell him that we have, well, I assume he would know this. I, I assume he has better source of information than you get on CNN or on the nightly news. But I would say that we have put together a picture of China that's extremely partial, that we have ignored major developments in China that are, if not positive, at least not completely negative, that there's a China... Actually, one of the things I tell them was that I, I think China intellectually is a center-right country, something that I've... I mean, I can't prove that, but the more I read, the more I think that they, the initial reflexes and impulses of most of the guys and girls that I read tend center tend or trend center-right which means to me that if we could think of a way to play our hand better, we could wind up understanding China better and being understood better by China. That this notion that, like Mike Pompeo's way of painting China, I thought was just totally overblown. Uh, he painted China as if it were North Korea. And it simply isn't. I mean, we can find incidents in pockets of China that are North Korean-like, but anyone who's spent time in China among Chinese people realizes that, that there's a richer, more diverse, more plural life. We don't have to embrace it, but we need to put that in our general picture of what China is if we hope to deal with them correctly and if we hope that they listen to us, you know? Back to this image of losing a lot of weight and someone saying your butt is still big. If I were that person who had lost the weight and still got ridiculed for being a fatso, I would stop listening to the people who were criticizing me, right? At a certain point, we have to do China the... Give it the respect it deserves for some of the good things it's done, even as we continue to try to correct and condemn the bad things. Interestingly enough, I think in theory, that's what our foreign policy is supposed to be this combination of cooperation, competition, and if necessary, confrontation. But it's very hard, isn't it, to do all three simultaneously? It very it is. The, the principles are quite easy to enunciate. It's finding the concrete areas to work on, and then also not letting the message get lost in all the messiness of everyday noise. Uh, it's so it's so hard to get that on track and so easy for that to go off track, uh, either through miscalculation within one government or the other, or media exploitation of some story that looks like it's going to sell a million copies or get a million clicks, which puts things off. I'm very glad I'm not a diplomat, and I am very careful not to take pot shots at them because I think it must be a, an immensely difficult thing to do. Uh, I'm quite sure that American diplomats are quite well informed. The people I know who work with them are in general quite impressed. Uh, but the subtlety of the message that they may want to relate doesn't get into our media very often. So we hear our own wolf warriors far more than we hear the sensible, measured uh, statements that come out of Washington. 
Well, let's end there with Beware of Wolf Warriors. David Ownby, thank you for coming on the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. I encourage everyone to go to readingthechinadream.com and read it along with me, both now and really going forward, because there's new content um, about twice a month, I think. So thank you again, David. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indo-Pacific Affairs. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Please help us by leaving your comments in the Discuss section in this page or on our Twitter feed at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites. 